You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. Okay, this morning we're back in the book. We're back in this book. This book is called The Story. If you're new with us, you haven't been with us in a while, all it is is it's just a, a chronological narrative telling of Scripture. Somebody sat down and said, how do we make so it just feels like you're in the story rather than getting lost in all the nuances and random stuff that kind of goes on? And so we started this about January. And we spent six months walking through the entire Old Testament this summer. We took a little break and went through the wisdom books, the parts that the story doesn't really cover. And now... Pastor Chris kicked us off a couple weeks ago. We're in the New Testament. And so for the last couple weeks, we've been looking at the life of Jesus Christ. And what we've done and the way we've approached this, because there's so many different ways you can talk about Jesus, is Pastor Chris has kind of done it more thematically. And he's done it in an attempt to answer several questions. And so if you remember, the first couple questions Pastor Chris answered is, well, where did this Jesus guy come from? Where did this Jesus guy come from? Who is this guy? And why did he come? Where'd he come from? Why'd he get here? Who is he? Chris answered that a couple weeks ago. And then last week, Pastor Chris spent the entire time talking about, well, what did Jesus teach about? We know that when Jesus came, he was seen as a famous teacher. Everybody, every religion in all time recognizes Jesus was a great teacher. Well, what did he talk about? And so Pastor Chris talked about that last week. Well, this week, I'm going to pick up on that same thematic idea, and I want to talk about what Jesus did. What I'm going to look at is called the ministry of Jesus Christ. And really what we're talking about is just how Jesus interacted with people. So we know what he talked about. We know why he came. But actions speak louder than words. What did he do? And that's what we're going to look at this morning. And so what I'm going to do is honestly like the easiest sermon of my life. I'm going to pick three or four stories and I'm going to tell you about them. I'm just going to tell stories about Jesus. And here's the thing. What we're going to do after I tell these stories, because these are stories, look, if you've been around church, you're going to be like, yeah, I know that story. And if you're new to church and you're just trying to figure out this whole Jesus thing, these stories will give you a great idea of who this Jesus guy is that we talk about. But these stories, what I'm going to do after I tell them is I'm just going to reflect on them. We're going to chew on them together. We're going to ask questions. We're going to say, well, what do they teach us about this guy? Because remember, if actions speak louder than words, Jesus didn't just perform these actions in a vacuum. He was very intentionally revealing things about himself. So we need to look at those things and say, well, what, what are we learning about Jesus? And here's the thing we're going to realize, is as you continue to chew on these things, as you begin to look at what Jesus has said, what Jesus has done, how he interacted with people, you walk away with a richer appreciation for Jesus. And as you think about the way he did things and the way he interacted with people, you begin to question, is that how I would do that? Is that how God views me? Is that the way I would engage that person? And as we begin to think about these things, we realize our lives begin to change in the midst of this. And as we're going to see, that really is the point all along. So I'm going to tell you some stories today. And then afterwards, you're going to wonder, when is he going to open the Bible? (laughs) halfway through the sermon, okay? I will open the Bible. Don't freak out. 
But in the meantime, I just want to tell you some stories, okay? These are all stories that come right out of the Gospels. In fact, if you were just to open up one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, any of them, you're going to find this first story in those. This is a story dealing with Jesus and a leper. Not a leopard, like a spotted cat, a leper. A guy with leprosy. And that joke failed just as bad in this service as it did in the last service. Man, I am so off my game. Okay, not that I was ever funny to begin with. Okay, Jesus and a leper. And so, if you're not familiar with leprosy, which I get, we don't really have a lot of that here, but the idea is this. Leprosy deals with the fact that your nerves in your extremities, your hands, your feet, they become numb. And when your hands become numb, what happens is you can't feel anything. So if you get a cut on your foot or a cut on your hands, you don't feel it. Well, if you don't feel it and you don't address it, your hand and your foot become infected. And when your hand and foot become infected, the skin becomes infected and the skin begins to disintegrate before your very eyes. And so leprosy was just awful. It wrecked your skin. And here's the thing, it was also highly infectious. And so it was believed the only way to treat leprosy in Jesus' day was to kick lepers out of the community. They were forced out of society. And the reason for that is if a leper was left inside of the community, then he would infect everybody else around them. So that was their only form of quarantine back then was they were kicked out. But that meant if you were kicked out of society, you were entirely cut off from everybody. Cut off from your family, cut off from your friends. You couldn't work, you couldn't worship corporately. You, you couldn't do any of the normal things of life. It was incredibly lonely, incredibly lonely. And so one day, Jesus is in this town, and this is very early on in Jesus' ministry. And this leper hears about a guy who has the ability to heal. And this leper's like, what do I gotta lose? And so he decides, I'm gonna risk everything. And so this leper just runs into town, something he wasn't supposed to do. He runs right up to Jesus. Again, something he wasn't supposed to do. And he falls down on his feet and he just begs, Lord, if you're willing, will you heal me? Jesus looks at him and goes, yeah, I'm willing. And then Jesus does the unthinkable. Jesus does the unthinkable. He looks at the man and then he touches him, reaches out his hand, puts it on his shoulder, and then says, be healed. And you're thinking, well, how how is this unthinkable? That's normal, everyday human behavior. Well, because in this culture, you didn't touch lepers. It was believed that if you touched the leper, not only would you receive leprosy, but even on a spiritual level, lepers were believed to be unclean. And so the very fact that you would touch a leper meant that you were becoming unclean. And if you were unclean, you had to be cut off from society. So the fact that Jesus did this, why is Jesus touching this person? As you read the story, you have to ask the question, why did he do this? And here's why. Prior to this, Jesus has already shown he doesn't have to touch people to heal him. If you're thinking, well, you know, in order to heal, you've got to touch the person. Jesus doesn't need to do that. Jesus has already proven. He just looks at people and says, hey, get up, take your mat, walk. I don't have to touch you. Again, so why does he touch him? Here's why, and this is just powerful, powerful as you reflect on this. Because what Jesus sees when he looks at this person isn't just his external problems. Jesus looks at this person, he doesn't just see him as a leper, a guy with leprosy. He sees him as a person. Jesus sees him for his humanity. And when he sees him for his humanity, he understands that this person, like every single one of us, has his own pains, his own hurts, his own desires, a a longing for affection, a longing to be treated with dignity and love. He doesn't want to be just seen as the guy with the problem, He's a person. And so the very fact that Jesus looks at the man and touches him shows us, first and foremost, that Jesus is addressing this man with human dignity. 
He's taking care of him as a person, first and foremost. And then Jesus heals his external problems. This is powerful. This is powerful because if you look at this story and then you reflect on this story and you ask, okay, what does this teach us? What does this teach us? It's very simple because you also see this in every other encounter where Jesus encounters somebody that's poor, somebody that's broken, somebody that's in pain, somebody that's sick. Jesus always cares about the human, always cares about the person. He doesn't see them as a problem. He always perceives beyond that and cares for them as an individual. Let me give you another example. Just prior to this leper story, just prior to this story, there's this paralyzed guy. And he wants to go to Jesus because he would like to get healed as well. But there's a giant crowd and they can't get to him. So his friends, they love this guy so much that they end up carrying this guy on top of a roof, digging through a hole in the roof, and then they lower this, this paralyzed guy right before Jesus' feet. Jesus looks at him and everyone in the room goes, well, Jesus, you're going to heal the guy. You know, you're thinking as you're reading the story, like, this is great. Jesus is just going to heal this guy. He's going to get up and walk. And Jesus looks at him. And what is the first thing Jesus says? Anybody know the story? Your sins are forgiven. What? Jesus, like, the whole drama, the guy can't walk. He doesn't necessarily care about the sin. The sin problem is not the focus here. Why are you talking about sin? Because again, Jesus doesn't see us as our physical problems. Jesus doesn't see us based on our circumstances. Jesus doesn't see us based on how society might categorize us. Jesus sees people as people. Jesus sees people as humans. And so he looks at this paralyzed man and he goes, your sins are forgiven. Yeah, he tells him, and you, just to prove my point, you can get up and walk. And then the leper, he sees the leper. He doesn't just see him as a leper and go, ooh, you're kind of gross, dude. Stay over there. He goes, no, no, let me touch you. Let me love you. Let me care for you. And in the midst of that, I'll heal you. This is powerful. Because as I reflect on this story, as I chew on this story, I think there's two reflections that I can take on the midst of this. It's very easy as I look at my own self, as I look at my own self and I look at my stuff, is this feeling like, well, let me go a different direction first. Because I'll come back to that. It's very easy when I drive down the road and I see a homeless guy on the side of the road to just justify them as a homeless person. It's very easy for me when I drive by somebody and they're in a wheelchair to just go, oh, they're a handicapped person. It's very easy for me to do, you know, label however you want to label people. It's very easy. And so this morning I was driving into work and there was this homeless guy asking for food on the side of the road. And as I'm chewing on this sermon, as I'm reflecting on these, these stories of Jesus, I realize this isn't just a homeless guy. This is a person who needed dignity, who needs love, who needs attention, because that's the way that Jesus treated these people. And it began to change the way that I perceive this individual. But even more than that, the truth is, a lot of times when we come to church, we have this idea, it's a false gospel, that you and I have to get ourselves cleaned up before we can come to God. That you and I have to be perfect before we come to God. And if we have screwed up in any way, shape, or form, then God wants nothing to do with us. That, oh, you didn't read your Bible enough. Oh, you sinned this week. God only sees you as a sinner, and so you've got to get your life in order before God does that. But no, what these stories teach us is over and over, Jesus sees beyond the external circumstances, what the world would categorize us, and he sees us for who we are. He sees me as John, a person who needs love, a person with his own issues, a person who needs affection and attention and the occasional slap upside the head, sure. But he sees me for me. This is powerful. If you can understand this understanding, and all of this comes just from reflecting on how Jesus engages the poor, the hurting, the broken. 
the same way he engages you and me. That's powerful. Let me give you another story. Another story. This is, occurs a little later in Jesus' ministry. Jesus and his disciples, they decide to get into a boat. And they go into Gentile territory. Gentile territory, Gentiles are, are just non-Jews. That was the Jewish word for non-Jews. There's Jews and there's Gentiles. There's non-Jews. So Jesus and his disciples, they get into Gentile territory. And when they get there, we're told that there's this little village. And above this village, there's these tombs where they bury their dead, probably in the hills above them. And we're told that there's a guy that lives in there. And he's kind of a nut job. And this guy is a nut job so much so that he would take these sharp rocks and he would just cut himself day and night with these sharp rocks. And as he would cut himself, he would cry out in pain, agony. And so this town, you can imagine, is sitting below these tombs and day and night they hear this man screaming out in pain and agony. And they don't know what to do. They've tried to help him, we're told. They tried to do the best they could do. They tried to bind his arms so he couldn't keep cutting himself. But it turns out this guy has some supernatural strength because he's possessed by a demon. We're told that even though they would put chains on him, he was so strong he could break the chains. And so everybody's like, well, what are we going to do with this guy? Well, Jesus rolls into town. And when Jesus gets there, this, this demon-possessed man sees Jesus from afar and just like the leper does the same thing, runs right at him right at him, runs up to him, falls down on his feet, and says, what do you want from me, Jesus? So here's the thing that's a little crazy about this. The man doesn't speak. The demons speak. So this whole story is about Jesus and demons, and how is Jesus going to interact with the demons? And what we see is this. The demons automatically recognize who he is. I know who you are, son of the most high God. What do you want with me, Jesus? And then, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. In other words, what you see in this story is, and this is crazy, if you're just picking up the Gospels and you're reading and you're trying to understand, who is this Jesus guy? I know nothing about him. All you've learned is he's a man of incredible compassion and love towards the poor and the weak, and apparently he can, teal, or he can heal and he can teach. And now you're having this new encounter with demons, and when the demons see Jesus, they recognize something about him that nobody else does. They recognize this is a man of incredible authority who can hurt us. In other words, the greatest forces of darkness and evil in the world, when they see Jesus, what do they do? They tremble before him. They freak out. Don't hurt me. And Jesus, as a way of exercising his power and his authority, doesn't do some magical incantation, doesn't walk in a circle seven times, doesn't spit on the ground, doesn't get some magical root, doesn't come up with some incantation. All Jesus does is he looks at him, get out. And at the very word of Jesus, these demons, they don't hem and haw, they don't go, well, Jesus, you don't understand, you, don't, you know, he did this and that. The word of Jesus, they dramatically leave this man. And does so in such a dramatic way, we're told that all these demons somehow go over to this herd of pigs, and these pigs, as soon as the demons go into them, just start jumping one by one off the cliff. It's the most dramatic fashion to show Jesus has authority over these, over these demons. And at his word, they respond to him. As you look at this story, you can't help but realize, okay, if that's who this Jesus guy is, that at his very word, demons understand him as having authority, that they immediately respond. The greatest forces of darkness and evil existing in the world respond to him like that. You have to ask yourself, you've heard a bunch of teaching stories about Jesus. When Jesus taught, is that how you responded? When Jesus said, I want you to go and love your neighbor, 
You're like, okay, I can do that. I want you to go love your enemy. Whoa. What? What? Jesus, you don't understand. There's that guy at work. He drives me nuts. He drives me nuts. I can't love him. He's so mean. He's stealing credit for my stuff. I, I can't love him. I, I don't know how you understand. Or I want you to go and forgive like I forgave you. <laughs> what? Jesus, you don't understand. My daughter has wounded me so much. Well, not my daughter. She hasn't done much. She just poops. Um, <laughs> your kid wounded you so much. They continually stomp on me over and over. I can't, I have to draw a line. This is just, they're abusing me at some point. And Jesus is like, you still have to forgive. Well, you understand, I've forgiven 70 times. That's great. I want you to forgive 70 times seven. But Jesus, you don't understand. What I'm getting at in the midst of this is this. When Jesus speaks, we do not respond like the demons. We don't. We like to argue. Jesus says something, we go, yeah, but you don't understand. Truth is, though, as you chew on these stories, you have to reflect, what is it about me that is so resistant to responding to Jesus? You chew on the story and you go, if the demons get it, am I worse than a demon? <laughs> I know it's kind of creepy to think about, but you have to, as you chew on these ideas and these thoughts, you're like, what is he getting at in the midst of this? Okay, so we've seen that Jesus is a man of incredible compassion and love and grace. Let me tell you another story. This is one that, again, sometime later in his ministry, Jesus has sent out his disciples. They've gone and done the same thing that Jesus did. Now they're coming back. And when they come back, Jesus goes, hey, let's get some bro time. Let's just get away, some lonely time. Let's catch up. Let's just relax a little. And so they go to a secluded part of the lake. But when they get there, it turns out there's a massive crowd following them. And it makes sense. I mean, this guy, this guy is healing people. He's talking to demons. He's preaching with authority. Like, everybody's curious about this guy. So they flock to him. And when Jesus looks up, he sees these thousands of people walking at him. He says, it's a, he had compassion on them because, as he said, they are like a sheep without a shepherd. They're lost. And Jesus is like, I got to do something about this. And so he begins teaching them and telling them how to live and all those other things. And then as day progresses, one of his disciples comes to him and goes, Jesus, this is great. You need to send the people home though so they can go get some food. And Jesus goes, that's a good idea, but I got a better one. Let's feed them. And the people, <laughs> the disciples are like, are you, are, are you kidding? There's like 10,000 people out here. Even at two bucks a plate, we're, we're talking like 20 grand here. Half a year's salary. How are we going to feed these people? And Jesus, if you haven't noticed, um, there, there's no Costco. Like, we're in the middle of nowhere. You intentionally chose a secluded place. Like, where are we going to get the food? And Jesus, with a twinkle in his eye, goes, he doesn't, the text doesn't say that. That's totally a Johnism. <laughs> well, let's see what you got. And so they go out and they find this little boy. And what does the little boy have? Anybody know? Some fish and bread. Good job. Some fish sandwiches. Couple fish sandwiches. That's it. And Jesus goes, yeah, that'll do. So he has these thousands of people sit down in front of him and he takes this, this fish and bread and he, he gives thanks for it. And then he just starts tearing and tearing and tearing and tearing and tearing. And soon enough, he goes, hey, Peter, will you take these pieces and start passing them out and tearing and tearing. Hey, John, will you get some of these? Tear and pass it out. Make sure those people in the back get some. And tearing and tearing. And Thaddeus, come on up. Because nobody ever talks about you, Thaddeus, but you're one of my 12. Come on, there you go. <laughs> and soon enough, soon enough, Thousands of people have been fed off these two fish sandwiches. And then Jesus says, hey, just humor me. Go collect the scraps. And there's baskets full of scraps. And everybody's like, how the heck did this happen? And so the crowd, we're told, has some perception of Jesus because they see who he is and they decide, we need this guy. 
He needs to be our king. Look at the way he treats the poor and cares for the broken. Look at the way he speaks with authority over the demons. If the demons fear him, imagine what the Romans can do, especially with his human vending machine capabilities. This guy can make things just come out of nowhere. This is amazing. And Jesus goes, that's not my point. And so he gets his disciples and they leave. And they go to a different part of the lake. But we're told that this crowd is not done with Jesus. And so a lot of them end up following Jesus and they try and find him. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at the conversation that occurs right after they find Jesus. It starts in John chapter 6. And so I invite you, if you have your Bibles, open up to John chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 25. But if not, we're going to throw the verses on the screen this morning. John chapter 6, verse 25. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of read and paraphrase. Read and paraphrase. Read and paraphrase. Going back and forth. And the reason for that is this is one of the most dense sections of Scripture. This narrative and this communication between Jesus and um, this crowd You really have to understand everything going on in the Old Testament. You have to understand everything going on in the current circumstances. You have to understand quite a bit. That doesn't mean you can't do it. In fact, what I would encourage you is, in light of what I'm sharing, go home and read John 6. Go home and read John 6. But for sake of time today, I didn't want to give you all of that background. I'm going to just paraphrase so you can understand it. So, again, the context is Jesus and his disciples have just left the thousands of people he fed with fish sandwiches. And some of these people have decided to chase after Jesus. And they, this is what happens. When they found him, on the other side of the lake, they asked, Rabbi, when'd you get here? Hey, Jesus, what a coincidence. <laughs> hey, Joe, did you know Jesus was going to be here? No, David, I had no idea. What a happy coincidence. Joe and David are the most Jewish names I could think of. Um, And so they're like, what are you doing here? And Jesus just looks at him, and you just have to imagine Jesus shaking his head, and then he says this, very truly I tell you, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, not because you understood what that miracle was all about, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. You don't get what yesterday was all about, guys. I get that's why you're following me. I get it. It's kind of weird. You can, you know, put the pretense down. Like, you followed me because you really like the fact that I just took fish sandwiches and fed thousands of people off of the whole thing. But you don't really understand what that was about, do you? Jesus says, I want you to get something else. I don't want you to work for food that spoils. See, you're just after these temporary gains. You like that I gave you one meal, but here's the thing. I'm offering you something more. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. For you see, that is what the Son of Man will give you. For on the Son of Man, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. The Son of Man is offering you something far more than just one meal, more than just some fish sandwiches by the seashore. I'm offering you something that will fully satisfy you. And they go, well, that sounds good. What do we got to do to do, to do, to do, to do the work, the the work, the work, the works, do works, do, I want to do, give me laws, give me responsibilities, give me dues, 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 assign me responsibility, do, do, do. Do you pick up here? What do we must do to do the works God requires? Jesus, give me something to do. Remember, I told you the whole context of this, you have to think in terms of the Old Testament, and Moses is just rampant in this conversation. Moses is everywhere if you're reading the whole narrative and dialogue. Well, what did Moses do? Moses gave him the law. 
In other words, they're saying to Jesus, we love this idea that you offer us something even more substantial than what Moses offered us. Just tell me what it is. Give us some new laws. Lay it down for us. We were so good at following the law under Moses. Just give me some new ones. You need me to go read my Bible a little more? You need me to go to synagogue a little more? You need me to tithe a little more? You need me to pray a little more? Just tell me. Give me a do list. I'll do it. I love doing things. And Jesus responds, you're totally missing the point. The work of God is really no work at all. The work of God is this. To simply believe in the one he has sent. It's not about what you do. It's about who you follow. It's about who you trust. It's about are you allowing me into your life? Trust me or are you going to trust yourself? See, the law was all about can you do it yourself? And Jesus goes, you couldn't. It's not about what you can do. Instead, trust me. I'm going to start something all new here. And then they have this brilliant response because remember the context of this whole thing. So they asked him, well, can you give us a sign that we may see it and believe you? What are you going to do for us? The Greek does not have, as far as I'm aware, a, a sigh of exasperation. But you could imagine at this point in scripture, it should be, <sighs> because remember, who are these people? These are the same people that were just fed with two fish sandwiches. Thousands of people that have just followed him, they saw a crazy miracle. And now they're saying, well, maybe before we believe in you, can you show us a good sign? And then they, this is just great. They're, they're totally oblivious to the whole thing. Our ancestors, they ate manna in the wilderness. As it was written, Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus goes, okay, first of all, let me clarify your theology. Very truly, I tell you, it's not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. Okay, first of all, let's make sure you understand this. This isn't about what Moses had to give you because Moses didn't give anything. It is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. And here it is. The bread that God gives, that <laughs> the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And again, they say, well, yeah, we want that bread. Jesus, we get it. You're talking about this. We understand you offer us something more. Give it to us. What do we need? We want it. And Jesus goes, how thick are you people? Let me be more explicit for you. And he goes, I am the bread. I know you've been thinking I'm talking in the abstract. I know you think I'm talking about some other law or some other complex thing. No, no, no. I'm the bread. I am the bread. Anyone who comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Come to me. Trust me. Allow me in. It'll radically transform your life. But as I told you, you have seen me. You've seen me do ridiculous miracles. You've seen how I heal people. You've seen how the demons tremble before me. You've seen me take a fish sandwich and feed thousands. And you still don't believe me. Very truly, I tell you, I am the bread of life. We're skipping down a few verses if you're following. Verse 49, your ancestors made, ate the manna in the wilderness, but they died. In other words, what Moses gave your ancestors, it didn't work. Why do you want to keep going back to the stuff that Moses gave? I'm offering you something entirely new. I'm offering you something so much better. <laughs> because the bread that is here, that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat of, they won't die if they take of it. 
And you got to understand, I am that bread that came from heaven. Whoever eats me, whoever eats this bread, you'll live forever. And this bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. Again, he's again, and he's already talked about how you eat the flesh, remember? It comes through believing in him. He's already, he's already made this argument. It, I know it's a little weird, but he's already made it very clear. The way you believe, the way you eat is by trusting in me, by following me, by ingesting me. And the people, if, you, if you've ever done this, I don't know if you do this in your marriages, but when I'm losing an argument, I always just pick up on one thing my wife says, and I run with that as though like I'm going to change the argument because I know I'm totally losing. You ever do that? Apparently you're all better spouses than I am. But the Jews do that because they're totally losing this Moses argument. They're like, yeah, Jesus knows better than this. So the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? It's like, dude, dude, we're just talking about bread here. Talking about bread, it's a metaphor. Get it right. What's going on? What, you want to talk about flesh? Like now, now you're just getting weird, Jesus. Well, Jesus just doubles down on this metaphor. And at this point, it gets weird. And welcome to the zombie apocalypse because Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. And whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. And you're going, ugh. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. In other words, what Jesus is getting at is this. You need to get me inside of you. Look, I, I know this analogy is totally weird, right? Like, eat my flesh, drink my blood. What are you getting at? And I know you're good Lutherans, and so you went here, and I'm telling you it's not about this. Not about this. But this analogy that Jesus uses is an analogy we use all the time. When was the last time you consumed a good book? When was the last time you went to a lecture and it felt like you were drinking out of a fire hose? You ever use that expression? Or, if you haven't picked up on what I've been doing all morning, when was the last time you chewed on something somebody said or did? To chew on something doesn't mean a literal metaphoric chewing like you're gnawing on Jesus' arm. It's taking something he said, taking something he did, and allowing it to just encapture your thoughts. And as you think about those moments where Jesus interacted with the poor, the broken, the needy, and you think about how did he do that? What does that teach us about the way Jesus interacts with me? What is the way, how should I interact with other people? Do I do that? Do I not do that? When I, I see the way Jesus interacts with the demons and I realize that Jesus has this incredible power and authority over them, yet when Jesus speaks in my life, I kind of go, Ugh. I'm chewing on that and I'm allowing him and his life and his ways and his understanding of reality to sink inside of me. And what it's beginning to do is it sinks inside of me. It's beginning to change me from the inside out. Because as soon as my thoughts begin to change, my actions begin to change. As soon as I begin to realize, look, I don't treat the poor like Jesus does. But as I reflect on the way Jesus treats the poor, I realize I'm beginning to treat the poor a little differently. I'm seeing them as humans, not for poverty. I'm seeing those who are sick, not as people who are sick, but as people. 
And I'm engaging that entirely differently. That is transforming the way I'm going. In other words, what Jesus came to do was he didn't come to just slap some paint on the walls, folks. Jesus didn't come in here and just go, we're going to pretty up the room around you and make everybody feel good about it. No, no, Jesus looked at us and he goes, I got to fix the rot and the termite damage and the mold damage going on inside of you before we fix the external problems of the world. Jesus is very clear if you look at his ministry. Yes, we will fix the external problems of the world. But more importantly, we got to fix what's going on inside of you. And no actions that you ever take, no efforts that you ever put in on your own are ever going to transform you. And let me prove it to you. I imagine most of you, your entire lives, were taught that the way you become a good Christian, a good Christian is you go to church regularly. That's a good Christian. Good Christians go to church. Good Christians, they pick up their Bibles. They read their Bibles for 10 minutes a day. 10 minutes a day. Good Christians do that. Mediocre Christians once a month. You're supposed to pray, what do you think, 13 minutes? Is that a reasonable amount of prayer time? 13 minutes, regular times. You've got to pray before meals too. Don't forget about that. That's good Christians do that. Good Christians do that. And then good Christians, they tithe. They give 10% of their income without even thinking. Got to give that money because that's what God wants of me. I got to do that. Got to do that effort. And then good Christians, when the children's pastor comes up front and says, we need help in the nursery, good Christians raise their hand and volunteer. That's what good Christians do. And I imagine most of you have heard some form of warped gospel like that. Like you got to go and do. And what Jesus is getting at is, no, there's nothing you can do. Now, doing doesn't fix anything. Those are all good habits, sure. Those are great things to do. But can I just be honest with you? I hate forced prayer. I hate it. And what I mean by forced prayer is when somebody has like a petition going around and they ask me to sign up to pray for like 45 minutes or an hour at a time. And it's not that I can't pray for 45 minutes. Like you've been listening to me for uh, probably like 35. I could talk all day long. But my problem with forced prayer is that when I get there, it's like, oh, I'm supposed to pray for 30 minutes. Well, I, can't, I prayed for 28 and now I just feel guilty for the other two minutes. Or when somebody signs up, I feel guilty, like I have to fill out this petition and sign it, and then I have to pray, and I'm like, I don't want to pray right now. And I feel like I'm forcing it into this behavior, and everybody says, it's supposed to be good for me. And I'm like, this is not good for me, because all this is doing is wrecking my relationship with God, because I feel like I'm forced to talk to him. I'm like, I'm not forced to talk to my wife, and yet, like, that's not why I love her. I, I love my wife, therefore I want to talk to her. And that's what prayer is supposed to be. And what we're so missing the point and what Jesus is getting at is this. We have this understanding of religion that if we just have these clear set of to-dos, then everything will be great. That's what the people are wanting. Just, you know, Moses gave us a list of to-dos. Give us another list. And Jesus goes, it's not about what you do. It's about believing in me, following me, Trusting me, allowing me and my actions and my teachings and my ways of engaging the world to get inside of you. That's what Christianity is all about. And so as for the prayer front, here it is. While I hate forced prayer, and I know some of you are thinking, we called this guy as our pastor? Like, who got this guy through the committee? <laughs> what I find myself doing, though, is as I chew on Scripture... As I look at the life of Jesus, and I'll give the example of the homeless guy I drove by this morning, and realizing, okay, Jesus saw this person as a person, not just a problem or not just a situation. Do I view this person in that same way? 
And I began realizing, I'm praying. Because I'm asking Jesus, how do I view this person? How do I love this person as you would love them? How do I engage this? I'm praying. I didn't have to force it. It wasn't something that was unnatural. It wasn't something that was just like there. It was a good habit, and it just naturally flowed. And why would I want to read the Bible more? Not because my pastor told me to. Frankly, that can be boring. I went to Bible college. I went to seminary. I've read more of this thing than I'm supposed to, and most of it was through assignments. I hated my Bible assignments. And yet I love to read Scripture. Because when I read Scripture, I'm not just learning because somebody told me I had to, but because I know that in there, I get to learn about Jesus. I know that sounds cheesy, but I mean it. I get to learn something and I get to chew on it and go, okay, what does this reveal about him? What is he saying about me? What is he saying about himself? And it's changing the way that I think. That's why I like reading scripture. Why I like coming to church. Why I like doing this job is, oh, this is not work for me. Standing up and preaching, I know for some of you, this is like terrifying. This is so much fun for me. One, they don't let me in the worship band because I can't sing and keep rhythm in any way, shape, or form. But this is my act of worship, is I study and I have an ability to just kind of communicate it in a way that I'm passionate about and some people like that. That's not work for me. This is a joy. This is a joy. Is that how you view your relationship with Jesus? Or are you so stuck in this workspace mentality of you've got to fix yourself, you've got to do, that you're totally missing it? Look, if you're looking at this and you're going, I kind of like the old way. I wish my pastor would just tell me I got to go and give 10% or I got to spend five minutes in my Bible. I like the old way. You're not alone. Jesus' disciples, they said this. On hearing it, many of Jesus' disciples, the people that were following him, said, this is hard. This is hard teaching. Who can accept it? And from this time, many of his disciples turned their back on him and walked away. And look, that's the key. They no longer followed him. They no longer trusted him. They turned away. Jesus then turns to his 12 disciples, his, his, his bros. Are you going to leave too? Do you want to leave? Are you going to go? And then Peter brilliantly chimes in. Lord, to whom shall we go? Where are we going to turn? We tried the Moses thing. That didn't work. We tried the self-help books that were out there, didn't really help. We tried the diet plans, the Atkins diet, that was cool, we got a lot of bacon, but didn't really help, didn't change my life, didn't transform anything. Lord, to whom shall we go? We've tried everything else. The only thing we know for certain is you have the words of eternal life because we have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter's not saying, Jesus, I fully got everything figured out. And in fact, as you look at the life of Peter, you realize this guy doesn't know much. But what Peter professes here is this brilliant, simple kernel. I don't know much, but I know I love you. I know, somebody else thought it, right? I know you are what I need. And so Peter, Peter just goes, where else are we going to go? We're going to follow you. We're going to look at where you live, and we're going to pursue you. Church, let's learn from Peter. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for who you are. Grateful for your son and the fact that he has stepped into our world to love us, to care for us, 
And as we have your word and we can look at the way he interacted with people, as we look at the things that he taught, as we we wrestle with the hard things he often said when he challenged our assumptions and challenged us to deeper places of truth, we're just so grateful that your spirit is able to help enlighten these things and apply these truths to our life. So Father, I pray that you would cultivate a hunger within this church, a hunger for you and you alone. Lord, we have to confess we're so good at doing or we like to think we're so good at doing and we allow these laws and these, these things that we're doing to get in the way of our true relationship with you and we don't want that. Lord, we long to hunger for you and you alone and as we reflect on who you are that you would just radically transform our lives that that would be the source of eternal nourishment that keeps us going day after day. And so regardless of what life throws at us, we know you are with us and you know, we know you will see us through. We ask all of this in Jesus' powerful and precious name. And all God's people said, what? Amen. Amen.